The way that we treat special education students is under fire nationally and in New York. Do parents need their own form of an AARP? I think that they do. And what is hopeful for us in terms of getting kids what they need to accelerate their learning? We're going to talk about all of that today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome, friends. It's another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. This is our podcast about education in America and the dark forces and politics that go into stopping us from getting the schools that we need and getting all kids educated. I'm your host, as always, Chris Citizen Stewart, also the CEO of Brightbeam, which is a national nonprofit of activists. It's a network of, of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. As it is every week, I've got my co-host Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and superintendent of a network of charter schools. I should say former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. And we are here to talk about the news of the day. But before we do, I want to jump in with Ravi. But before we do that, we have a new feature on the show, and that is a voice mailbox. You can actually call the show Leave us a voicemail asking us anything, telling us anything, giving us pieces of information that you think we should have, challenging us and debating us on things that we have said in this podcast, or giving us show ideas or guest ideas. The phone number is 321-213-9171. New feature on this show. We should actually have applause for these new features that we keep adding. We also have an email address, citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. Again, that's citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. For those of you that are shy about being recorded, then just email us. Anyways, Ravi, how are you doing, man? It's another week. Here we are. Well, we got to see each other in Miami. Are you sick of me now? You, you got to see me talk all about political communications for a while. We had a fireside chat without a fire. Are you sick of hearing my views at this point? <laughs> I am not. You're one of my brightest friends that has lots of important things to say, even when I disagree with you. So it was a good fireside chat. I would love to say for my friends, uh, flying from Minnesota to Miami for one of the first times in my life, actually, in the wintertime was a, a hellish experience. Miami's not for me. Tropical weather in the middle of winter is not for me. This is quite the complaint. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there are plenty of people who would take your place. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it just wasn't for me. Listen, they can all have it if they want to. It just, you know, when we talk about shithole countries, um, a lot of that was coming up in, in my mind as I was there. Oh, stop it. I, I was mentioning this to our conveners down in Miami because you once invited me to one of your gatherings, which was held at the Mall of America. And the hotel and the meeting space were both in the Mall of America. So I flew to your city. And did not leave the Mall of America the entire time. Yet, here we were in a beautiful hotel in Coconut Grove, Miami, the week of Art Basel, whatever that is, just all the fancy people, great weather, and you still complain about it. Yeah, it was hot. It was uh, musty. And you come out of your room, there was no air conditioning outside of the rooms. It was just a weird, weird thing. At least with the Mall of America, you know what you're going to get. First of all, it's across the street from the airport. So you flew in. You, you went straight to a five-star hotel. Five star ish. So fancy you are. And uh you had you had like because you're such an a fitness nut guru or whatnot, do you know how many miles it is to walk around all three levels of the Mall of America? You could walk right out of your hotel and get all of your fitness needs taken care of and your shopping needs. So there you go. Well, as a fitness fanatic, I like vitamin D, which I'm not getting a whole lot of that in the Mall of America. This is very true. And you're not getting a lot of that in Minnesota, period. Just just yeah. so you know, there's a reason why we this are. This is why all you're so grumpy. Up. 
Yeah. Well, Why are you so grumpy? You're not getting enough vitamin D. I think if I moved somewhere else, I would still have that grumpy and grumpiness uh, about it. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to test that at some point. And I will tell you why. I will tell you why. Because I live and breathe the type of issues you and I talk about on this show. And the first one that we're going to talk about today is definitely the type of issue that you fall down a rabbit hole and it makes you mad. If you're anybody who cares about children and the outcome of children, uh, you really have to have a heart for the most vulnerable children, the kids that actually need all the help in the world that they can possibly get. And in the United States, that's very often special education students. And you sent me some stuff in you know over the last week regarding special education students and the way that we treat them in the United States, but specifically in New York. And it's not like it's unknown to me. We know this all the time. But just when you think it can't get worse, how we treat some kids, it gets worse. So for people listening, I would love to say just like just to start, we're going to talk about special education in New York and and Ravi has a story uh, in Seattle that's really important. But before we do, just nationally speaking, in in 2020 to 21, the number of special education students uh, who are receiving special education services under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, better known as IDA or ID or IDEA something like that, was 7.2 million students. Not an insignificant number of students, but it's, you know, it's enough to, for us to care that, that we're, when we're getting it wrong with them. It's about 15% of all public school system. Now, what the federal law says about these students is that every single one of them is entitled to a free and appropriate education by law within their school districts. But the way that that gets that plays out is different in different places. Different states have different things going on. Uh, we won't talk about it today, but I like to bring up the case of Texas. If anybody has time, just Google Texas and special education, and you'll find out that Texas School Board Association and all the school boards of Texas conspired with one law firm to figure out a way to deny services to their special education students and to cap the services that they were entitled to by law. That's just one massive example of systemic failure of how we treat these students that you could localize to other states and other places, which we're going to do. In New York City, that's what we're going to turn our attention to today. Something I learned about this week I did not know about, but I, you know, I'm kind of ashamed. I should have known by this time uh, what are called Carter cases based upon a law in Florida, or a, I'm sorry, a court case in Florida that said that in some cases, students who need to get services outside of the traditional public school system can be reimbursed for tuition outside of the school system. Chief amongst those students, special education students who have special needs and they're not being served uh, by the system. The number of these cases in New York City, students receiving Carter case settlement uh, money shot up from 5,300 cases in 2015 to 17,700 cases in 2022. And I'd love to know from Robbie what happened in that time. Um, yeah. But those cases are very expensive. They can, you know, some of those cases are $100,000 of a, a wealthier family that's putting their kids because they have special needs into a private school and the public is on the hook for paying that back. Actually, one of the cases was $140,000. The district had to pay 100000 of that. If you times that, times the number of kids that should get the rich people's solution in New York, that would be $1 trillion, $1,770,000,000. It's almost going towards $2 trillion just for New York, just for 5,300 kids to be treated right. 
So Ravi, tell me more. <laughs> I'd love to know more about this. Yeah, up. and we touched on this a bit on the the flagship loss debate show last week, but I wanted to bring it here because this is where we talk about education issues. And there's actually been some new reporting since we did that segment. And shout out to Alex Zimmerman at Chalkbeat, Abigail Kramer at the City ProPublica, Lulu Ramadan, Mike Reischer, and Taylor Blatchford at the Seattle Times. There's been a lot of reporting. ProPublica has been at the forefront of this and really fighting with the districts, whether it's New York or Seattle, the districts and the states who are misspending this money and allowing this to happen have been fighting the discovery, the Freedom of Information Act requests for this money, and they have a lot to be ashamed of. So spending on these Carter cases has gone up five times since 2012, 5X what it was. It's now $918 million per year in New York City, almost a billion dollars. And Zimmerman claims that there's you know some more money, a couple hundred million more on top of that. So it actually is over a billion, depending on how you count it. And these cases are not equally distributed throughout New York. So you're talking about the $100,000 a year, these elite boarding schools that these kids are going to. There are cases where kids are getting horseback riding as therapy in the schools that are being paid for public dollars. And to give you a sense of where these kids are coming from, New York is split into 32 geographical regions. These are called community school districts. Last year, more than half of the settlement agreements, because these cases turn into settlement agreements, which I'll get to, this that will help you start to explain what's been going on with this rise here, because there's actually a procedural issue that happened here. But more than half of the settlement agreements here, meaning the kids getting this money, involve students who live in just four of the richest and widest districts, which includes Manhattan's Upper East Side and Park Slope in Brooklyn. The poorest community school districts rarely see Carter case money. So you have 2,600 plus kids, mostly black and Latino, who are labeled with an emotional disability and are usually shunted into city-run special education schools, right, which are not serving them particularly well and being deprived of resources. So this is a shame. I think this is one of the most outrageous. You couple this with what's going in Seattle, which we'll talk about. This is outrageous. It's great reporting. And the question now is, now what? How do we solve this problem? No, I had a couple of big problems <laughs> that seem like a small thing to pull out of all this research that you guys did for your, your last show that you did. You guys sent me so much and I looked through it. One of them was just how bad the data is when, the, when journalists went to write this story. Like how yep. bad the data is on tracking the demographics of the students who are getting the Carter yep. money, for instance. Something so simple as that was hard to find. So they had to do it by like like what school area they they come they came from to make inferences. Whenever I see a lack of good data, I know that inequity is about to happen and follow. Yep. So when we talk about systemic issues, systemic issues require data. Fixing systemic uh, issues requires data. So in this case. The very first thing is bad data. The second thing about that data that I needed to know was that there were so many different areas of disability that you could talk about, but there were a few that rose to the top of this, like autism rises to the top of this. And autism is actually, by percentage of disabilities, it's actually down the chain. So, um, and, and, and wealthier families tend to get autism diagnoses um, easier and faster uh, than all the other disability classes. Never mind the anxiety disorders, which are on the rise. Yes. And this is a controversial thing to say, but anybody can get diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in America today. There's a huge scandal with these online uh, firms that are prescribing mm -hmm. anxiety medication mm -hmm. to kids and ADHD mm -hmm. medication to kids online. You, it's almost impossible 
to mm-hmm. not get diagnosed if you want to. And then they're turning around with those designations and getting uh, public health. Meanwhile, you have these kids, mainly kids of color. We've all served those kids who have sometimes major disabilities who are not being served well within the system, who are not accessing that money because they don't have the money to hire a lawyer and the advocates, they might not even know how to take advantage of this. And the genesis of all of this was Bloomberg, under Bloomberg, they staffed up the lawyers and they actually scrutinized the appeals. So the numbers were down. And then, uh, worst mayor in America, Bill de Blasio, (laughs) anti-choice, by the way, a guy who hates charter schools, but has no problem spending a billion dollars a year to send fancy kids horseback riding for their anxiety. He starts to pull back the lawyers. Remember, where does Bill de Blasio live? Mm -hmm. He lives in Park Slope. He's interacting every day with these fancy families who feel like they're entitled to public dollars to send their kids to Exeter like facilities for their anxiety disorders. So this is a real problem. And I think this gets to, this is another controversial statement, but when you're dealing with special education kids, they are the most underserved and the most overserved kids in America across across America. And I want to repeat that, the most underserved and most overserved kids in America. The most underserved kids are the ones who don't have the right advocates, don't have the right resources, um, who are either being put in general education settings or stuck in the basement and put in unsafe settings. And then you have the overserved kids, the kids with the soccer mom, who, you know, if the kid doesn't blink right, they're getting them a designation. They're getting extra time on their tests. This goes all the way up, leads to special time on the, AC, the ACT and SAT and all that kind of stuff. This stuff is abused. And we really need to make tough choices. We need to be comfortable delivering hard truths to parents and scrutinizing them when they make these claims. Okay. So you said a couple of things in there where you said that they were uh, controversial statements. So the first one is that it's just too easy to get an anxiety diagnosis and then to get medication or to get services after that. I don't want to touch that one right now. I'm just going to leave that one sit there for a second. This one around scrutinizing the parents though. This Well, let me just say, and I'll put in the show notes, I'll talk to Tommy about this. We did a whole uh, segment on Lost Debate about this about there are whole companies who've gone under now because they're over-prescribing kids without any evidence. They're doing these five-minute consultations to get anxiety medication. And you could read all about Wall Street Journal's done a great great reporting on this. You could just go online and Zoom with somebody who just asks you two questions and moves on, doesn't even care what your answers are, and will prescribe you medication for that. So we, we, we've covered that before. There are kids with real anxiety disorders who actually are the ones who suffer the most because of that, yeah. to be clear. Like if you're a parent listening to this podcast with a kid with an anxiety disorder, it's not to say that your kid doesn't have it. It's to say that there are plenty of parents who treat it like you know, emotional support pets on an airplane, and they're using it to achieve other means and doing it disingenuously. And those people need to Here's be what I would think would be smart for the system would be a different word than scrutinize. I would think, because scrutinize to me implies kind of like a prejudice of that you're looking for, for something. And I would say evaluate. A good use in the system would be to evaluate case by case. There are wealthy people. And first of all, Here's my thing. I'm a child advocate. I advocate for all kids, period, just in general. I think every young person in the United States has different things going on. I think sometimes we talk about kids in a way where we we talk about the awfulized kids, black, brown, poor, downtrodden, have so much you know going on in their lives. Their parents are working three jobs, but yet they don't have any jobs. <laughs> you know, it's like like we kind of create this awfulized picture, and then the rich kids, or and then the white kids, or then. And I can guarantee you that 
one way that I have to challenge myself always about that type of way of seeing kids is that within those white kids that are wealthier, blah, 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 they're still just kids. They're still bulimia and depression and mental problems and dyslexia and delay, mental delay and handicaps of all sorts. So evaluating to, to, to shake out the parents that are abusing the system, maybe from the ones that aren't is a, is a smart thing to me for the system to do. But we even within those folks that have resources, they still have kids that have like real needs, like in special needs. So that's just one kind of thing I'll say. The second thing that relates to that is I think that look at these things as systemic, like systems, what in the system is causing problems. I couldn't find the villain here. A lot of stories we do like this, like to me, the villain is really kind of like the Darth Vader mm -hmm. of the galaxy makes himself known whenever I fall into one of these. And in this way, everybody had a little bit of Darth Vader in them and a little bit of Luke Skywalker. <laughs> and I couldn't really, but I will say this much, like about the the not having a villain. I feel like the system's the villain in a way. Like it's, it's the system's I the villain. Say, and it yeah. makes everybody bad actors. I'm only going to point out this one thing that I think is really important that I don't think we're going to mention. This is one way that these kids show up in the system that creates a new problem that might contribute to that big number, that growth. New York State, this is from the ProPublica piece, New York State made a deliberate choice over the past decade to eliminate hundreds of beds for children and adolescents in psychiatric hospitals and residential programs while failing to follow through on promises to dramatically expand community-based mental health care. And it goes on to talk about how those kids actually who would have been getting that level of care within the system now just show up as regular students in the public schools and it's on the public schools to find some way that they've not they never had before to address the needs of these kids where another system failed and that's what i call systemic like this is the schools the schools are downstream yep. in this situation which is why i talked about earlier the types of, it being important to talk about the types of disabilities because these kids that are part of the expansion the bigger number of kids especially with the black and brown kids. A lot of that is uh, mental health, uh, anxiety, the, the not necessarily the other types of, of um, special education needs that kids might have. And that's because they've been turned away somewhere else within the system that wasn't the schools. Now, I know what you're going to say. I'm letting the schools off the yep. hook a little too much with that one. I don't think so. Well, I, I would say that their villain is, is there is, I would say, I would give de Blasio a lot of blame here and his education officials, where if you look through the details here, they they not only, imp they made decisions that led to this problem, but they fought Alex Zimmerman from Chalkbeat going back to 2016. He was trying to get this data and they were fighting him on it. And then it turns out they didn't even have it. They could have then started collecting it and they didn't, right? And uh, they're also, I, I can't stress this enough how much they're underserving the kids who choose to stay within the system or who don't parents don't know how to take advantage of the system at the schools that i was talking about earlier where the 2600 kids within the system go to these have some of the lowest attendance rates in the city the highest dropout rates so they do have data on that these are kids who are more likely to wind up in rikers island eventually we are not serving those kids well and the teacher project has done some follow-up work on this and surveyed all 50 state departments of education about mm -hmm. private placement mm -hmm. needs. The 17 states that responded with demographic information about students in publicly funded private schools revealed 
stark overrepresentation of white and wealthier students. In five of the seven states which reported, reported the largest private placement enrollments, white students are significantly overrepresented in California, Massachusetts, and New York. The share of white students in private placements exceeds the share in public education by about 10 percentage points. So it's pretty significant. And Chancellor David Banks in New York initially responded to this report. And I got some good friends who were in that office. He responded to this report saying that this is a crisis for the system and the amount of money they're spending on this system, this sort of private system alongside the public, is actually bankrupting the system. He says all this money that is meant for kids in our public schools are going to private schools. Folks have figured out how to game the system is what he says. We wouldn't be having this fight about budget cuts, you know, essentially, if we didn't have this you know, billion-dollar hole that we have to spend this money on. Now, obviously, we're weary of the private, public stuff in certain contexts, but this is one where I'm like – 100,000 plus per kid, a system that's this inequitable, the guy's got a point. Yeah, so this is what I would ask you about this, because we could talk about these things lots of times. The problem is pretty obvious. This one, the problem is deep and detailed, and you just mentioned a lot of different places where <laughs> there's variants of the same problem going on. Uh, before I jump to, the, to this point, I have a question for you around this, like which gets to the heart of like, what do you think the solution is? Yeah. Like, what do you think is the answer here? Like, this is, this feels, this feels uglier and hairier than any of the ways that we look at public education problems. Like other things, you know, it's the, the answer is choice. The answer yep. is just more qualified teachers. The answer is just like better instruction. You know, this is not one like that. This is a weird business yep. model problem. But before we get to that, I do want to highlight this. Well, can I answer that before we do that? Just since you raised it, because I do have an answer. Well, I do want to just, let me just add this one. And then it's a data okay. point from New York. Because I want to put this on the table. The kids in New York with emotional disability as being their disability, this is just a thing about outcomes. Only half of them actually graduate from high school, half uh, within four years. And the city itself estimates that another 15% never receive services at all, which tells you that even more kids, just the odds against them uh, graduating and becoming productive members of society is really, really low. Right. Like that's the outcome. So now let's jump to the solution part. Like what is a systemic solution to what seems to be like a gross and unfixable cluster in the system? Yeah. And this actually dovetails a little bit with the Seattle story, which came out in ProPublica as well. But before I get there, part of the solution is is almost like back to the future. Let's go back to what Bloomberg did, which was it wasn't perfect back then, but at least we were asking the questions. Like you were saying, I forget the word you used instead of scrutinize. Evaluate. Evaluate, right? We under the de Blasio system that he has in place, you're basically, you, you hire the right lawyer, you're guaranteed money for whatever the hell you want to spend it on. Now, that needs to stop. And so, because we don't have a money trees here in New York City, we've got all kinds of problems, both within our system and outside of the system. We've got a migrant and homeless crisis that's spilling over into our school system. The system is not able to deal with it appropriately right now. We've covered that on Lost Debate before. I mean, there's just a whole lot going on here. In New York. And so the idea that we just have a billion dollars to shed every year, and never mind the systemic problems, when, what happens when you guarantee for the most affluent a ticket to go to whatever fancy private school they want, these have huge consequences for the integrity of the entire system. So I think just even going back from a legal perspective, it's just having a real system of checks and balances and, and mm -hmm. scrutinizing, or whatever word you use, these applications. I think number two is asking more of the private actors that are taking this money, which is 
you know, we should treat them in a way mm-hmm. that we treat charter schools, right? Well-regulated institutions that take public So stop dollars. there. Just stop there for a second. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that, too, because we did not talk about that yet. But this is in all of the research around the the business partners sometimes are not on the up and up. Yes. So <laughs> talk a little bit about that. That gets to Seattle. So the, the Seattle following story, God bless ProPublica, they looked at a company uh, called, it's a school called uh, North... West Soil, S-O-I-L. It's like an acronym. It's their Washington State's largest publicly funded private school for children with disabilities run by a company called Universal Health Services. And what ProPublica has reported is that this company for years has skimped on staffing and basic resources while pressuring managers to enroll more students uh, than staff could handle. And this investigation by the Seattle Times of ProPublica found, and this they also run psychiatric hospitals. It's kind of scary stuff. They basically are getting these contracts from the state. Mind you, by the way, remember this name. If you're in Washington, there's a guy named Chris Rakedall, who's the state superintendent. Hates <laughs> charter schools, but has defended the renewal of the contract for Northwest Soil. And if you read this article, they have collected $38 million in tax dollars over five school years. And... The, these schools are an epic disaster. I can't do it in full justice on this podcast, but you should read it. These are messy schools. These are understaffed schools. They're often unsafe. They're not treating kids well. And we don't even know how much they're profiting. This gets to the, the transparency. We should know how much profit people are making. We should demand. Like there are certain student-teacher student ratios in Washington that this school isn't, isn't required to abide by. Never mind their special education schools. They often have uh, higher student to teacher ratios than the mm-hmm, traditional mm-hmm. setting does. So they are really grifting this company. And it gets to this mindset. These are people who in Washington, you know this, these are some of the most anti-charter people that exist. And if you look at the state superintendent, he filled out a, a questionnaire for NPE Action, which is a Ravage-founded organization. They endorsed him for state superintendents, citing his anti-charter mm-hmm. school stance. And all about, oh, the money, we don't have the money for this, we don't have the money for that. And meanwhile, this guy's you know shoveling money out the back door to a private actor and providing a horrific experience for kids. And so this gets to, there's just certain things you can ask of these people, student-teacher ratios, audited financial statements, what are your profits, mm-hmm. real inspections, quality control, like actual results for kids that you can compare against the traditional setting. I mean, that's just the beginning. And all that stuff is true of charters. Like by yeah. and large, right? Like you, there's a whole lot. The student-teacher ratio is a little tricky, but by and large, charters have to, you know, they have to produce results and they have to show their financial books. And I think that's well, largely a good. Well, I mean, thing. sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Well, good states is what I'm saying. Yeah, like if you look at the, the states that have their stuff. Going well, as a on. charter supporter, as a education supporter, as just a school supporter, and as a kid supporter in general, but I'm a, the biggest supporter of just good government. So we should have number one. We should just all hate fraud across the board, whether it's privatized fraud or publicized fraud, whatever, publicized fraud or whatever it is, we should just all hate fraud. Uh, We should hate shortchanging kids. I don't care where it happens. It could happen in any segment or whatnot. The thing is, is that people pick and choose. And you just mentioned a guy with a top spot in a state who's supposed to be a watchdog for the public, who talks a good game about privatization and uh, is a beneficiary of an endorsement from an organization that talks endlessly about the perils of privatization and the perils of – but what right. they don't do, which would make them more honest and make them more friendly to, to my position is – 
they pick and choose where they want to raise that. And they don't talk about how complicit they are in systems that are grifting constantly. We've been offloading, the traditional public school system has been offloading kids to private entities for years, for, for decades. I shouldn't even say years. I don't want to make it sound like it's recent. For decades in contract alternative schools. And this is just another case with special education students. Like we can't handle their needs. Let's just go ahead and, and satisfy the upper crust parents, which is something else that private, that public school districts do often. Hey, as long as we just take care of the upper crust students uh, and their families or whatnot, we won't have many political problems because they'll be our shield from political problems. I mean, listen, David Banks in New York said something about like we're getting robbed here or grifted or something like that. He said it was some version of that. And the parents came after him so hard that he had to walk the comet back. Right. And this is the this is the tough talking, tough talking Adams administration. Ah, we're tough talking guys. Blah, 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 blah. Listen, listen, he learned what Arnie Dunkey said years ago about that particular parent class. Yeah, I was thinking partic- of Arnie. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. thinking Arnie. I was thinking I was gonna yeah. make that comparison. But he, here's the thing on that. Then let's give everybody vouchers then. I haven't been a forceful char- voucher advocate, but I'm getting warmer to the idea because it's absurd. Oh my god, let's let's mark this day. Robbie I'm getting has, warmer yeah. to the idea. If we're giving vouchers hundred plus thousand dollars to the most affluent, well, then let's get serious about the most vulnerable and all these progressive politicians. They talk all all these people, and I elected so many of them in New York. They all love to talk about charters. Vouchers is not even you can't mm-hmm. even get in the door talking about vouchers in New York City. I was about to say, apparently, you can talk about vouchers. You have vouchers in New York City. This is them. They're they're, they're like you know they're voucher workaround. You actually just put your kid in a private school and then you sue, sue the public school system for the tuition and you get it. That's a voucher. Right. Yeah. And so, by the way, all we don't even count with 100000 plus the amount of money this litigation costs. And it's going to cost even more when we try to fight this stuff. And this gets at We have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are in the work. And people are often asking me if they support charter schools in certain forms of school choice. How do I talk about this issue? And, and you and I talked about this last week when I was in Miami. Stop apologizing for supporting school choice. Make the people who are attacking you explain why they think their form of school choice is acceptable and yours isn't. When they're taking advantage of this kind of stuff or looking the other way, which is usually what happens, they won't defend it publicly because they count on us not knowing about it, right? Or they move to the right neighborhood to get a fancy house, but that's not school choice. Meanwhile, going to a charter school is school choice or taking advantage of a voucher is school choice or they send their kid to the fancy magnet school. How many of these school board members, right, you know, in Nashville – you know, our, one of our favorite school board members sends her child to the School mm-hmm. of the Arts in Nashville, mm-hmm. a magnet school, but then hates charter schools, right? These people exercise school choice in so many different ways. I don't even talk about sending kids to private schools on your own dime because that's a form of privileged school choice. School choice is everywhere. You got, In New York, you guys have this weird hybrid of uh, public-private schools, publicly funded private schools that screen kids by test scores to decide whether or not they can earn a seat yep. in. I will say this as we wrap up this segment, and we should keep talking about this because this is a big, hairy, ugly, systemic problem. My, my, my bottom line on this one would be I'm for school choice. I'm for charter schools. I'm for magnets. I'm for all kinds of things that get, get kids into various different type of educational opportunities that, that are right for them. And special education is a place where it's really the most tailored. Like, what do you have going on that you need help with? We got to get you to a place that can do it. That's the most need for school choice. 
Yet, and still, we have this thing called a public education system. And what I started this conversation by saying is the rich people's solution to this, giving everybody that the what rich people are getting in terms of tuition would almost be $2 trillion just for 5,600 kids, which to me sounds like a pretty lousy system. Yeah. So my school choice people need to come up with a way where the system – is viable. And that's not viable. It's not viable for 5,600 kids to spend $2 trillion. Not in my mind. So let's come back to this uh, another time. Yeah. And and folks listening to this, leave any uh, leave on our voicemail that I gave you the number to, and I'll give it to you at the end of the show again. Uh, anything that you thought about this segment that we did not cover that is our burning points that we should have covered, and also any additional information and guests, if you think that we could bring a guest on that would really rock our house and knock our, our, our socks off, uh, leave that in the voicemail too. Now, as we transition to something that I think is along the same lines of what parents need to do to get what they need, the Think segment today actually uh, comes from a piece in The Atlantic that was on, uh, it was a November 18th piece in The Atlantic called Parents Need Their Own AARP. And as some of you might know or may not know, I'm a member of AARP. Love the discounts, love the power, love the ability to know that uh, we're a lobby that won't be messed with, man. If we really wanted to um, have power for parents, we'd actually consider something very similar. So this piece says. The piece makes kind of a run-up to, to that point by saying, compared to other wealthy nations, the United States is uniquely difficult. It's a uniquely difficult place to raise children, which I can attest to with having so many kids. One in four mothers returns to work within two weeks of giving birth. We're the only rich country that doesn't have federally mandated paid leave for new parents. Other wealthy countries invest an average of $14,000 a year for every toddler, uh, for the care of every toddler. But in America, we only spend $500. I could go on and on with other stats about how we're just like to be so exceptional. We're actually falling short of what we need to be treating our kids from day one the way that we treat kids when we love them and we think that they're the future of a country. So this author proposes an AARP for parents, which could choose widely supported policies to champion, welcome members of all ideologies. AARP, for the record, happens to be a third conservative, a third liberal, and a third moderate, which is exactly the mix. It's probably why they're they're so popular. So they pick the right issues. But this parent one would forge partnerships with the private sector and hold policymakers accountable for the needs of the roughly 63 million Americans raising children. So what do you think, Ravi, when you read this, an AARP for parents? That's the idea. There's a part of me, this is going to be the most unpopular thing I've ever said on this podcast, but I don't care. Uh-oh, I'm ready. Let's do it. This is a country for married people with kids. That's it's been set up for married people with kids and dog owners, I would say, which is a whole separate thing. In New York, you can't walk down the street. We treat dogs better than we treat homeless mm. people in New York City. But the but here's here's my shtick on this. Single unmarried people, we get screwed. <laughs> this is this is the hottest take. Um we don't get tax breaks. Couples who file jointly get deductibles on federal and state taxes. Social security goes back into the system when you die. Uh, if I died, but couples, their spouses receive the payments. If you get married, you can claim your spouse's Social Security age 65 and accrue more time and claim it later. Married couples can put two people in an IRA. If one doesn't work for five years, the other spouse can make contributions into that account. But if you're a single person, you stop working, your family can't make contributions to that account. 
Spouses can withdraw from an IRA for medical and educational purposes and not face a fee, but single people do. Never mind when you get around to the kids, right? We pay into public school system. You don't use it. I'm happy to do it, but it is a thing. Parental leave is a thing, but usually single people leave is not a thing. 529 plans, you could put money away for your kids' college education. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Man, where's the single person? Where, where's where's the AARP for single people out there? It's called the Libertarian Party. And we're doing our job to to work on environmental destruction. Look at this runaway population growth. Can't popul- This planet can't handle all the people we got right now. We're doing our job right now to to mitigate that risk. We should We should be the ones getting the tax break. This is the most ridiculous thing you've ever said, my friend. This is the craziest, most ridiculous thing you ever said, my friend. First of all, women who have children actually take a big hit in their lifetime earnings. Let's just start there. So single women who never have children and never get married actually have uh, have it a lot easier than actually the people who are repopulating the planet for the future and making sure that we have future success. Shout out to my mom. She worked two jobs. Yeah. You know, um, they take a big hit actually in becoming mothers and truth be told, actually families the reason that I think that there, the, the the benefits that you get tax wise and all those things aren't necessarily inducements to have children. I think they're actually they're admissions of how expensive it is actually to have a family and to raise families, and that the level of family economic insecurity in the United States actually a lot of those people would be better off being single people uh, actually than some of the the burdens that come along with it. You cut you can talk about the benefits of you know. I have to say. Being unmarried, I don't want to say single, but I, being unmarried and without children is freaking awesome, I have to say. I'm always hearing about how people's yeah. kids are awesome. Uh, and I believe yeah. it. I believe you when you say having kids is awesome. Uh, but I feel like you know, if you're somebody like me, I'll probably have kids uh, maybe one day. But like, you constantly have to like explain yourself, like why you didn't. I'm like- it should be pretty obvious why I haven't. Well, yet. these are these are like single people <laughs> you know? problems, but I will say this much in terms of thinking about it, it's us. We're a big part of well, the population. I mean, you're a big part of the population. I don't know that I would overplay that card just in that you just become one more group with a grievance in the United States that actually is living kind of high on the hog. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's, 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 Oh, it's, you it's, just so, started this with the know, grievance so. of how much hard it is to be a parent. Well, I mean, I'm just responding to your grievance with our I th- grievance. I think if we thought about, first of all, I think we need a nation that cares deeply about what we do for our kids and what we do for the people that actually uh, support our, our children. And I think we get it very wrong in comparison to other countries, which I think the author of this piece is making the case for in other countries. They actually, I mean, listen, Finland, you know, and I don't want, I don't want to do the Finland thing. It's like, you know, cause in ed reform for years, every time you say Finland, it's like band camp from American, you know, uh, pie, like, you know, uh, this one time in Finland is becomes the one time at band camp, but you know, Finland does get a lot, right? So, um, they don't get education right anymore. Damn. As a matter of fact, they've been sliding for years and people who still keep bringing them up as like this educational Disneyland should stop it because actually it's really just not true. But on this one thing in terms of care for kids and state kind of support of families, in Finland, you get a box um, that comes when you're having a baby and a letter from the government that says, thank you for actually increasing our citizenship, increasing uh, our country and blah, blah, blah. And in that box is everything that you need, I think, for like six months, the first six months of that baby's kind of care. There's 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 clothes and blankets and booties and, and books and all kinds of stuff in that box. And oh, and by the way, the box itself can be used as a crib. 
the box itself is actually has a function and the kid the baby can actually sleep in it safely as i say that's that's a love letter yep. from a government that cares about kids and we have the opposite going on so so all this single person I, stuff you know whatever that. that's great but we still need i'll take off my skip bayless shannon sharp hat off for a second because i'm there's part of me that's just okay, trolling good. you but i do think this is partially this is partially context specific right in new york we send certain parents that box, and inside that box is $100,000 a year to send your kid horseback riding for their anxiety, paid for by mm-hmm. my tax dollars. So depending on where you live, now if you're in Mississippi, we send you a box that says, fuck you, we're not doing anything <laughs> for you. So there's actually like two different two different realities in America. And what I would love to do is like bring a little bit more word of the day scrutiny up here in New York and even out those resources, maybe give more of those to a kid in East New York, fewer resources to the kid in the Upper East Side. I would expand Medicaid almost anywhere in America, I would say. And I'm absolutely for helping the most vulnerable deal with parenthood in all seriousness. I hope so. And I, part of what I'm saying with single stuff is I'm joking in part, but there's also like, it's where you live, right? In New York, we do spend a lot of money on our kids here. We just spend it poorly. So the question is like, how are we spending the resources we have? Because there is a heavy tax burden on the middle class in New York. Basically, anybody who pays any taxes in New York pays a lot and it ain't well spent. And we just picked one example earlier in this pod. But if you look at anything, whether it's how do you build a park in New York? How do you build a mile of subway? How do we house the homeless? There's money wasted and grifted because we have a lot of people who say they're progressive but are really profiting off of the system and thinking about how they're going to get that next vote, not how they're going to help the vulnerable. And as long as that's true, I'm going to be a little skeptical of people saying we need to pour more money into a system. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you're saying that too, as a single person. So I just want to, you know, troll except trolling accepted, but I like the idea that you still put a lot of weight behind you've ran schools. You still care about kids. You do believe that we, what we believe a strong case, a strong nation requires strong families and strong kids. I, I love the fact that we have certain politicians and others who put strong families ahead of everything, put strong economics, like economic security in front of everything. Uh, I don't have to agree with their party's platforms, but I do. I have a soft spot for um, supporting the context in which kids grow up in. And those are, those are families um, and at least their parents. I will say about the, um, you know, if I'm going to troll you back to just really quickly and I should let this go and we move on to the next segment here, I will troll you back. Um, single people um, actually cost society more. Um, single men especially cost society way more in terms of crime, in terms of crime, oh. in terms of depression, I've not committed of, any crimes. Well, you I'm haven't committed, committed any crimes. crimes that you know about. In the United States, it's very easy to commit crimes all the time. I said to you when we were in Miami, I said something like, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I only break the same laws that everybody else breaks, you know, so which is true. Uh, you know, anybody goes through mm-hmm. a, a stoplight or whatever. But when it comes to law-breaking and crime and cost to society, single men are very expensive. They're like really, really expensive. And unfamilied people can be very expensive. Now, I'm going to give you this. <laughs> Unfamilied people, <laughs> untethered people are very expensive uh, to society, which is why we want strong families and well-supported families and kids to grow up in context of, like, like I'll give it to you on women. Single women unmarried without kids are the happiest people in the United States by research. I'm not making this up. Actually, look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, single yeah. unmarried women on their own. 
men, and I don't want to get into a Matt Walsh <laughs> discussion here, but men need families. They really do. They should. This is like a like, Jordan Peterson podcast here. It kind of is getting there and I'm, I'm almost like regretting it as it's coming out of my damn mouth because I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to like agree with the Canadian on anything like that. But it is kind of true that men need marriage more than women and society needs men to be tethered to something like marriage and kids need to grow up in some form of a stable, economically stable family. Well, let me give you the last word on that. And we'll quickly, we'll quickly dispense with the hope we should, it makes me realize maybe we'll start some episodes with hope in the future because we always do it the least. <laughs> because I think our minds are so we're like heat seeking missiles for the, the negative, but Shout out to Kevin Huffman. He used to be the commissioner of education in Tennessee. I knew him when I was down there. Very nice man who cares a lot about children. He wrote an article in the 74, uh, November 22nd, all about this organization called Accelerate that he started, which is just announced over $10 million for their first round of grants for high-powered tutoring. As he puts in this article, there is a huge research base for tutoring being effective. I've read so many of these studies. I'll share in a bit some of my experience within schools on this. I think it is very important when done well. It's one of the best mechanisms we have to change kids' lives and improve their academics. And it's something that wealthy parents do on their own dime and that we need to do better at uh, within the system. I loved this story. I love the work that he's doing. So um, you guys are going to probably hear from me in this topic right now and in previous shows and in past shows, or, I mean, shows going forward or whatever that I'm going to always come back to systems. And there are four things within Kevin's plan that he, that they are focusing on that I think are smart, that make smart systems. Like I always like to see these plans. What are you focusing on? So in this case, it's access to human capital. Their grantees are exploring long-term sustainable pathways for tutor recruitment. Like you need a pipeline of tutors. They're also focusing on management capacity. Oh, can I just say something about the human capital front before you move on? Sure. I love these categories. So these organizations, he's giving money to local people who are doing great work on this. Deans for Impact, they're testing out using aspiring educators, so future educators to tutor. Great Oaks is using AmeriCorps members. Oakland Reach is, look, is using parents as tutors. Once is using paraprofessionals. Amira is tapping high school students. So they're testing out different strategies to bring people into this work to tutor students, something we've talked about before. Yeah. Awesome. Love this. And, you know, uh, of those that you just mentioned, too, those are very different types of tutors and and help that range from community-based to, you know, kind of uh, more institutional. The Oakland Reach model, they call their tutors liberators, and they're teaching them, they are training them to be literacy liberators. Uh, and I love the model. Years ago, and this is going to get on the communist side, so if you're listening to this and you've got a problem with communists, so what? In Cuba, Cuba actually deputized thousands of people to be oh, um, literacy um, literacy coaches, uh, educators, and they deputized them to go out into the hillsides, into the country and teach people to read because they had a very big uh, illiteracy problem. And it kind of proved that you don't just need four years to be in college to be a teacher as the only way that a state lays, like raises the intelligence of a people. Um, they actually deputized kind of middlemen to go out and do it. So I love the Oakland Reach model, which is to me similar. Not to say, if you're listening to this, not to associate them with uh, communism if you think that there's something wrong with that. And if you think something's right with that, okay, comrade, let's go. Anyways, the other areas. So the first one was access to capital. So I mean, another is, day we'll do our capitalism debate, communism, yeah, not well, today. That is, oof, God, that one will be a mess with me. Um, access to human capital is the first one. The second one 
known as management ca- capacity. So they're giving grantees the money to explore ways to centralize support for tutoring and capturing the best practices and implementation. And, and these are wonky guys, but listen, systems are what matter in education. The third category is alignment uh, of tutoring content with core curriculum which is very smart. Like what are people learning so that we know that they have a high quality core curriculum and that they're sharing the data uh, quickly with teachers, something that we have not always done in the NCLB era. And then the last thing is cost. The grantees are testing various ways to help districts identify savings while ensuring that the tutors remain effective at driving student outcomes. I felt the need to go through these wonky areas because when we talk about education, we could talk about the the entertainment value of it or the politics or any of that stuff. It all comes back down to, uh, I think it's uh, Atomic Habits guy. What is the, What is his name? What is... James, James Clear Cleary? actually has this this quote where he says, um, you don't rise to the the level of your habits, you fall to the level of your systems. Uh, and if you haven't read the book, I think it's a great book. But I think that's really important in education. We could talk about all the politics and the dark forces and you know the problems. You're always going to come back to asking the question, what's the system? What systems do we have in place to deliver what yeah. it is? And right now, we have millions of kids in the United States who are so far behind like they are so far behind. We have a national uh, remedial project on our hands, the scale of which the country has never experienced before. Yeah. Talk about systems, by the way. Back when I was running Nashville Prep, we had some of the highest growth, highest achievement that charter schools have ever seen in that state. For years, we were, there's two different measures of student growth in Tennessee. There's the Tennessee Value Added System, and then there's Stanford's Credo. And we were number one in the state for charter schools on both of those measures. And we were outperforming the fancy schools and all that in certain subjects. And people often ask me, like, what was the biggest driver of this? It was this program. We took it from Excel Academy in Boston called Focus Tutoring, which was they were spending, I think, 40 minutes a day doing tutoring every day. And we supercharged it, made it an hour and made it way more aggressive, where essentially what we created was almost a draft system where every day for an hour, students would get tutoring. And the way we would set the groups up, these were dynamic groups that we would set up every single day. And for the following day, there would be a draft after school. And we had a whole system, a spreadsheet for doing it, where the reading teachers one day would get first pick, math teachers would get second pick, and then we'd flip it. It would always be reading and math. And social studies and science would get the, you know, they'd get who they want. And then certain other teachers, like in principle, like I would run a group of kids. Maybe they're on Khan Academy. Maybe we're reading a book together. Maybe they're doing their homework like the kids who weren't pulled for tutoring. And we would do this every single day. We'd rerun this list. Now it was super onerous. And it's one of the many reasons why it was really hard to work there for a period of time, but it worked for kids, right? So if there's a way we could do that, make it work and do some of the stuff that Kevin's talking about, bringing adults into the picture. So it's more sustainable for teachers. You know, he's, he's working with certain uh, assessments like Eureka math and Zern and assessments and illustrative math, like these programs that can help make it easier. Cause a lot of those things didn't exist back when I was running schools. We start to layer in the technology and human capital innovations, extra funding. Mm-hmm. This stuff really works. This is the stuff that moves the dial for kids and kids love it. Like as much as they hate interacting with teachers in a 30 person setting, kids love interacting with adults when it's three or four of them at a time or one-on-one. They really, really like the help. You no, know, I can, Vouch for it as a dad. You know, one of my um, kids, actually, one of my middle kids, um, fell behind very big in math uh, last year. 
uh, last school year. The teacher was kind of checked out and wasn't really interested and hadn't paid attention to how far my son was falling behind. Uh, even though we have a plan, well, without divulging too much, underneath some of the things we talked about earlier, our kid is is identified for services. Um, this one teacher actually just actually didn't pay attention all year that there was this uh, massive gap. One of the uh, solutions that we had was he went to after school tutoring and in there were there were a couple of young dudes, two young dudes in there who really knew math and they were the math tutors and they were really relatable. And my kid caught up really quickly by going, he was doing more actually catch up and doing, making more progress than in the classroom, which was really interesting. He had more one-on-one time with a guy that he thought was actually closer to his age and like really cool and really knew math. And he thought it was cool that this guy knew math and it was through a national program that he was there and it worked and he got caught up in this year. He has a more attentive teacher. So um, what the teacher had told us last year was maybe he should just repeat the grade. Now he's in accelerated math this year. <laughs> like he's literally in, well, you know, advanced math this year. He's taking uh, uh, advanced math, which to me is just a testament to putting your kids before the right people um, who have the right expectations and the right preparation. To help your kids. So I'll end on this note. I think it's really important. This is like one of the more controversial things that I might say actually in the in this particular show today is I think we have too many lazy people in the United States, intellectually lazy, checked out, entitled people who believe that something should be happening for kids that they don't have any hand in and don't want to have a hand in. It's going to take all mm. kinds of adults to do their kind of citizen duty. This is called the Citizen Stewart Show. It's all about being a good citizen, not just a person who throws rocks and just a person who has a grievance and a complaint about everything and hates half the country and blah, blah, blah. That's not good citizenship. We have a massive remediation project with kids and all of us have something to offer them and to give them, to give to them. It's not beyond any of us to read to kids, to support kids or to donate to organizations that are helping kids in what, what, but it's all hands on deck. Teachers can do so much right now. Systems can do so much. Administrators can do so much right now, but there's so much more to be done, right? Like the idea, listen, this will be uh, uh, controversial. In the United States, and this is, God, this is going to feel like a Kanye Uncle Ruckus thing, but I'm going to say it anyways, right? Like the idea that in an in information age in the wealthiest country in the world that your kid comes to kindergarten without knowing shapes or colors of any sort or having any kind of like setup to pre- be prepared to succeed in school sounds like a choice to me. And I know people listening to me are going to go instantly to the awfulized parents. Oh, my God, you know, you're picking on the victim and all that. No, 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 no. I'm just saying that it kind of feels like a choice. We could be doing so much more for our kids than complaining all the time about what the system is not doing. We need choices. We need strong systems. We need strong educators. Yes, absolutely. And even when we have those, we're going to need strong citizens strong parents, strong aunties and uncles and guardians and friends and friends of friends. And hey, listen, if you're like Ravi and you just like care about yourself because you're single and you don't care about anybody else. So, and, it's just so- and you devote your, <laughs> your prime years of your 20s to educating kids in North Nashville and setting up high power tutoring services, exhausting yourself to the point where You've delayed your own childbearing years for 10 Listen, years. This is where I'm going to give you some bail, Ravi. On that, all of that, yes to all of that. Yes, you have done uh, all of this. I know that if I wasn't a parent right now, but I was an uncle, I'd be like the best uncle ever. Like, like it's like I have a lot to give. Yeah. And you, you're an uncle. So you, you kind of get what I'm saying. You can, 
you can play a role anyways. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to end this show today is to say that we all can play a role. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to get our kids caught up and everybody has something to offer. Those of us who do education in some way, shape or form every day should be evangelizing the other adults in our lives to play some role some part. Um, this has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show with Chris Stewart and Ravi Gupta. We are um, glad that you are sticking with us. And from show to show, we're building audience. The way that we build audience is by you sharing this show. And I know in your mind, you're saying, yeah, I should do that. And then you might not do it. So this week, actually, let's make this week that you do it if you haven't already. Uh, subscribe to the show. Um, leave a rating for the show. Leave a comment. Only five star. Only five, five star, star ratings. ratings. You know, I, I don't okay. want to gin up the you know the wrong solution here, but please, yeah, give us the five star rating. Tell your friends who you think might be interested in listening to it. Help us spread the word on the show. Also, let me back up to okay. So, oh, can I say we're the fastest growing show Lost Debate has ever had? The Citizen Stewart Show is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is amazing. I did not know this. Um, maybe it's my picture on the thumbnail. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah that actually, like, I'm super fine. It drives like traffic. Anyways, also let me say this. We don't want this to be a one-way kind of listening situation. So we have added this feature that we talked about in the beginning of the show. We now have voicemail. So you can call us at 321-213-9171. Again, that's 321-213-9171. That's our voicemail box. Leave us complaints. Leave us your thoughts, your ideas. Pick on us. Give us a hard time. Give us show ideas, guest ideas, or book ideas, and uh, we will follow up on them. If you are shy, too shy for that, we also have an email address. That's the Citizen Stewart Show at lostdebate.com. Uh, and you will reach us there. And we will also be reading those, taking them in, and responding to your comments either on air or by taking your suggestions. Again, thank you guys so much for sticking with us on another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. This is a proud uh, um, show. Like I'm a proud member of the Lost Debate Network and love what we are doing to grow the debate and get more people into the Big Ten. Let's keep doing it, folks. 